you ever feel out of place? I mean, not just at a party. Sometimes you're there and uh, it's a party of coworkers or something and you feel like, I, just, I don't fit in with these people. They're talking about things that, that I don't talk about. They have uh, things that they, they, they love that they're interested in. It's just not my same world. But I don't mean just at a party or at, at work with your coworkers or at school, but out of place in this, this world. Do you ever have a sense of just estrangement? Do you ever look around and, and have the feeling, I don't belong here? If you ever feel out of place in this world, Christian, I want to tell you, there's, there's a reason for that. And if you claim to be a Christian and you never have a feeling that you are out of place in this world, there's actually a problem with that instead. Today we're going to start the letter of 1 Peter. And at the heart of this letter is really the teaching that we are exiles or, or strangers in this world. In a sense, this world is, is not our home. I mean, it is, but in another way, it really isn't. And I think as we face the uh, uncertainties, and who knows what is coming uh, with this, this next year and the years to come, and challenges and, and changes in our country and in our world and society and situation, I really think this letter of, of 1 Peter, that was written nearly uh, 2,000 years ago uh, to Christians at a different place and a different time, but in so many ways going through so many of the same circumstances that we are in. And the heart that Paul ha- or Peter had to uh, prepare them for the changes in their world, for, for persecution, for suffering, uh, for the, the changing times that were coming upon them, I think this is an ideal letter for us as we look into the future now to have our hearts and our minds and our lives prepared for whatever in God's sovereignty might come our way, to prepare us for trials, to prepare us for persecutions. And Peter, in this letter, we're going to see that he reminds Christians that they are, they are strangers in this world, but they have their security and identity because they belong to God. These are things we want to see. These are things we want to sink in through our mind and to our hearts and to be lived out in our lives. So we are going to be just looking at two verses uh, today. So just, just two verses, not a lot, but there's enough in here to occupy our time just looking at these two verses. So 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. We will read these verses together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's move and we'll unpack this. And basically we'll do first verse, second verse, two points here. And the main point I want to get at this, this first part of this is the idea to tell you that, that Christian, that you are a resident foreigner in this world. And we see there's different ways we can, we can see this. We saw the phrase here, exiles, different translations put it different ways. But we're going to come back to this because it's really a main point 
of uh, these passages, and really it sets up the whole letter of 1 Peter, getting in our mind this, what does this mean that we are, uh, that we are strangers, we're resident foreigners in this world? So, as we walk through the, the text here, first thing we see is, is the word Peter. This is telling us who is this from? Who is this letter from? This is from uh, Peter. It says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So you think of who Peter was. He was one of the 12 original uh, apostles chosen uh, by Jesus Christ, uh, followed him around in his, his three years of, of ministry, uh, witness to all of this. And he was one of the, uh, even one of the kind of inner circle, along with uh, uh, John and, and James, and uh, just very foundational. The, all the apostles were to the building of the, the New Testament church. Ephesians tells us that uh, the, the church is built on the foundation of the, uh, the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as, as the, the cornerstone. So there's a difference between disciples and apostles. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a disciple. That's what disciple means. It means follower. But we're not apostles. Apostles were this uh, special group of, of eyewitnesses that were commissioned by Christ, and apostle means sent with authority and given to uh, be the foundation of the, of the church. And so once the apostles died out, uh, there weren't apostles after that, but Peter was one of, these, one of these apostles. Now, this is what it says, and we'd be inclined to say, well, that must be who, who wrote this. Do you know there are critics that say, well, you, don't, you can't really believe that Peter actually wrote this. I mean, you just, isn't that kind of you know, naive of you? And there are you know, Bible critics that love to poke holes in things and make you doubt practically every word the Bible says. And some of these uh, critics will say, well, this wasn't really written by the Apostle Peter. Now, you'd say, well, it sure seems like it is, because first of all, it says right at the beginning here that it was written by Peter. So you got that going for it. Um, unless the Bible's lying to us, it's, it's written by Peter. And also, the unanimous view of the early church was that this was written by Peter. I mean, from, from the beginning, Christians have recognized this letter as, as coming from Peter. But some of the things that they say, and I'm going to give these to you quickly just to be aware that these things are out there. They'll say, well, it wasn't by uh, Peter because, well, the, the Greek is too good. You know, the letter was originally written in, in Greek, and they say, you know, Peter was this uneducated fisherman. And you got the, the Greek here, and how did he even know how to write this? And it just, the, the grammar looks, you know, too good, and this, this couldn't have been him. Some will say, well, it talks a lot about persecution in this letter, and he's writing to these people that were, uh, it looks like he's writing from Rome, and he's writing to people in uh, what is, uh, we would consider Asia Minor, which is, uh, well, that's what they called it. We would consider it modern Turkey. And I'll bring a map up here. And so if, on the upper right hand, you see this is uh, what today we would call Turkey. And uh, back then, a lot of the New Testament churches were planted in this area. Uh, Paul planted uh, was involved with quite a few, at least on the lower coast, but up to, it's written to these different provinces, and it mentions this in First Peter uh, chapter 1, saying to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, that's the province of Asia, and Bithynia. And what these critics say is that, well, you really didn't have persecution in those areas in this time when, when Peter was so alive, that Peter probably died under Nero in the mid-60s, 80-60, uh, around that, t- that in, in that decade. 
and you didn't have emperor or empire-wide persecution until the end of the first century. And even when Nero started acting up and you know, burning Christians in Rome, that was mostly in Rome, not in these other areas. So they say, what's well, another reason why this must have been written later on? Because it talks a lot about persecution and it talks a lot about uh, suffering. They'll also say um, different things that um, it's a variety of reasons why they say, well, some almost even say, well, the teachings in this letter are just, it's too much like Paul. And they say, well, th- therefore, it, this it really isn't Peter. It's somebody just kind of copying Paul. And they say that sometimes, you know, people wrote letters with different pseudonyms. They claim to be, you know, Peter or someone else. And that was just an acceptable thing. Let me give you just a few brief replies to some of that. And again, first of all, it says right in the text that it's from Peter. So unless uh, scripture is wrong about this, uh, unless this person that wrote this is a, a liar, a liar, 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 uh, this was from, from Peter. So for me, honestly, that settles it right there. Now, some will say, well, people in the first century or later on, they would oftentimes write under the name of somebody else. Well, sometimes that happened, but the church never accepted those as genuine scripture. They, accepted, they, they, they excluded those and said, these are, these are fakes. We're not going to listen to these uh, you know, false gospels or false letters. Uh, so even though sometimes that would happen, that wasn't something that the, the church accepted. Also to say that, well, his Greek is, was, you know, in here uh, is too good for an uneducated fisherman. Well, I think maybe it's underestimating uh, Peter a bit here. Um, just because uh, he didn't have advanced formal schooling uh, doesn't mean that he had, had uh, no ability to, to speak Greek or maybe even to write it. Uh, he was from Galilee, and they were, off, they were bilingual in that area. Greek was a common language of the empire. You needed it to, to trade and to do business. But also, too, at the end, in, in chapter 512, it mentions Sylvanus. It mentions Mark, these other people. And it could be, as often was, that you had a primary author and he would dictate it and work with uh, somebody else that was a secretary or writing it down. And so Sylvanus or even Mark was with him, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, um, you know, could have been also working with him to, to have this message written down. As far as persecution, as far as we know, yeah, there wasn't empire-wide persecution like there would be at the end of the first century, but there was always lots of local persecution. And we see that all through the book of Acts, uh, that there were things people were always having to deal with. And if Peter was writing this from Rome and seeing things coming down with Nero and seeing him, uh, what was coming, uh, he knew he needed to prepare Christians everywhere for what would be their experience. And he was right. There was persecution that is, uh, that is a constant to one degree or another. And also to say, well, it's too much like Paul. Well, that's only, I guess, a problem if you assume that the writers of Scripture are all going to contradict each other. But if you assume that this is all guided by the, the same Holy Spirit that, uh, and these people that were, were taught by, by Jesus Christ and inspired by the Holy Spirit, and, uh, then this, that's not a problem at all. That would be a great thing to recognize that, okay, Peter and Paul are, maybe have a few uh, things that they're, uh, special things that they're teaching, but it matches up. That's, that's a good thing. So we're going to conclude that this is definitely written by Peter and inspired text by the Holy Spirit.
The next question is, who is it to? It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and it says, to those who are elect exiles, I'll come back to the word elect in a little bit, but exiles, it says, of the dispersion. And if you're looking at this in a different translation, it, it may use different words, and that can be good. It can help us understand what this means. And it gives us some of these places that we're in. We looked at the map in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and some of these different areas that are in, well, as we said, modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor, kind of, kind of back then. But the word I really want to focus on is the word exiles here. And what does that mean that he's talking to these people as, as exiles? Different translations, we use different words for this. Uh, the ESV and NIV use exiles. If you're looking at a King James, it's going to say strangers. And each of these sometimes captures a different uh, meaning of the word. Some may have, uh, it's good to look at more than one because sometimes, you know, if you just say stranger, that might put a certain image in your head and might be the right one, might not be the right one. Uh, the New King James says pilgrims, uh, which if you think about it the right way, meaning an exile or a stranger or one that's, that's traveling through, uh, that's kind of what it's getting at. If you're thinking, you know, big hat with a buckle eating turkey with the Indians, obviously that's not what it means in this sense. Um, the NASB says those who reside as strangers. But the idea here of the word that's behind this for exile meant a resident foreigner. So it could mean a pilgrim, a stranger. Basically, it's someone that comes from a, a foreign country into a city or land uh, to, to reside there, but they're not a native of that area. They, they're living there now, but they're not, a, they're not a citizen of that area. They're from somewhere else. So Peter is telling these, these believers that that is what their experience is like, that they're like uh, resident foreigners living in a land that, that's, that's not their own, that it's, in one sense, it is their home right now. That's where they live, but it's also a sense where it's not ultimately where they're, they're, they're from. They're not, never going to feel fully at home there at this time. I think this is a real key to the whole book of First Peter because we see this in other places too. If, uh, if you have scripture open, you can look ahead a little bit to chapter 2, verse 11. And this is where people debate, are, is Peter talking about these people being you know, literally... Um, uh, part of the dispersion, uh, literally exiles, in the sense of, uh, when it talks about the dispersion, there was a word that was meant, the word is uh, dysphoria, and it was a technical term for the, the Jews that were, um, when they were captured by Babylon and dispersed throughout, later on, a lot of them took off and were dispersed throughout the nations. You know, so is it talking about literally uh, maybe Jewish believers that were scattered abroad? Or is it talking to, to Gentiles that were saying we're kind of like this? Or maybe a little bit of both. But I think at the core, it's saying that uh, our experience for all of us as believers, whether it's back then or whether it's today, is that there's a sense where we are um, exiles in this world. Because look at verse, chapter 2, verse 11. Here, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, and keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
So there, not only does it use the word for exiles, but it uses the word for, for sojourners. Uh, so someone that is uh, an alien resident, um, someone, again, living in one place without the right of, of citizenship in that area. I think another thing that's a little bit of a clue is if we flip way to the end, chapter 5, verse uh, 13, and so you have this final greeting at the end, and it says, by Silvanus, which may have been Silas, and may have been kind of a co-author helping to write this down, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's a great section there. This is the true grace of God. Think of this. This is what this letter is going to communicate to us. The grace of God, stand firm in it, even when there's trials, even when there's persecution. But then it says this. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So the letter finishes this way, but it has this weird phrase like, she who is at Babylon. Okay, what does that mean? Babylon, that's over in, today it's in Iraq. And you think, well, no one really thinks that Peter was writing this from actual Babylon. That just wouldn't make sense. He, di- he didn't go there. And so it really seems like he's doing here is, it was another thing, he's, he's calling, uh, if he is in Rome, uh, where it seems like he was, was martyred at the end of his life, uh, he's referring to Rome as being like Babylon. And I think another thing that he may be doing along with this, you know, if it keeps talking about being exiles. It says it at the beginning, it says it at the middle, and then you have this reference to Babylon here. If we remember our Old Testament, we remember uh, this big thing that happened with Babylon was the Babylonian captivity. So when Moses leads the people out of, uh, out of Egypt and eventually Joshua leads them into the promised land and they, they conquer it and they uh, set up the, the kingdoms of uh, Israel and later Israel and, and Judea in the south. And during that time, you know, the kings there reigned. Everyone, uh, you know, lived, well, they're supposed to live under the, the Old Testament law there uh, and uh, being God's uh, Old Testament covenant people. But they were unfaithful. They were unfaithful over and over again. They kept sinning against God and against this, uh, this uh, covenant that they had agreed to. And we saw this when we went through, you know, Numbers and Deuteronomy, that they said, oh, yeah, we'll agree to this, and there'll be blessings if they obey, and if they disobey, there's going to be curses, and they'd be removed from the land. And God sent prophets to warn them and saying, hey, you guys are treading on thin ice here. You know, you get to the point where, where God should be removing you. You should have judgment coming. And eventually, judgment did come. And it first came in uh, 722 B.C. The Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in 586 B.C., Babylon came, and they wiped out the, the southern kingdom of Judea. And they took a lot of people, a lot of people were killed, and a lot of people were taken captive as exiles into, into Babylon. And so it's the time of Jeremiah, it's the time of uh, Daniel, the prophet, and he's taken along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys, and they're exiles in Babylon. And so I think by referring to uh, saying she who's in Babylon, I think he's talking about the, the, the others that are chosen, the other Christians, the, the church that is, that is there, whether it's in Rome or wherever, saying it's like we're all living in exile. We're all living this experience, not like we're just 
comfy in, in Israel with everyone, you know, supposedly believing the same things. And No, we are, our experience now as believers is to live in exile, to live in foreign territory, to live as, as strangers in a place that is, that is not home, a place that is not going to be, be comfortable to us. And so through all this, Peter is telling his readers that, that this is what it is like for us. And in the same way, this is why Scripture speaks to us in our experience as well. People like to think that, oh, there's a time when, you know, America, just everyone was Christian and everyone just did nothing but, you know, follow the Ten Commandments and live perfect lives. And uh, we might be remembering that, you know, a little too optimistically. Um, And there definitely was uh, ways that America you know, was influenced by uh, Christian beliefs and principles. I don't want to take away from that. But as we look at the situation that we're in now and moving into the future, is it true that we are, is our, is our experience in the church now, is it more like an Israelite living in Israel with an Israelite king and Israelite laws and everyone is supposed to obey and everyone has the same culture and the same beliefs? Or is our experience now as Christians more like exiles in Babylon. And we haven't moved. I mean, we're still in the, the same country that we're in physically, uh, if you look on a map. But in other ways, we look around at our, our country and our society and our world, and it's like, who moved our country? What happened? Who changed our society? Who changed our culture? And I think this is why First Peter is, is so helpful to us right now, because more and more, uh, we can't be under this illusion that we're like the, the church in Israel. We're more like a church in Babylon. That's the experience that we have and are going to, unfortunately, I think, be having more and more as we move forward. And so we need to adapt to that. We need to have scriptural lessons in how to live in that situation. And so the same way that Peter prepared his original listeners for this, Peter is also, through the Holy Spirit, writing to us to prepare us as well. So if you have a sense of estrangement from this world, there is a reason for that. Consider yourself a resident alien, a resident foreigner in this world. Remember that you have a different spiritual citizenship. Yeah, we have citizenship in this world. You're uh, probably a citizen of the United States of America and uh, the great state of Michigan and all this probably. Uh, But our spiritual citizenship is is in heaven. There's a way that we're... This world is not our home, at least not in the full sense. Again, it is, but it isn't, at least not like this, not like it is right now. It means that we ought to be different from the world that is around us. We're going to find that we have different values. We have different customs. We have different ways of doing things, different mindsets. And sometimes we see this in the big things in life, and sometimes we see it uh, just in the the small ways of doing things. Uh, But more and more, just things that uh, maybe at one time we had agreement with the culture, we're going to realize that culture, by and large, completely disagrees. You watch TV shows and just the different ethics of uh, marriage and sexuality, for an obvious example, completely different from the way that Scripture teaches this. You see things in, in the world going on, and not just in America, but in, in our whole world. Um, and so at this last week, it was Argentina legalized a, abortion. And I don't know if you saw any of the videos of this, just massive crowds just 
cheering, uh, just exuberant over their right to, to murder their babies. It was just this ugly, horrifying thing to watch, and they're so excited about this. And it's like, what different mindset, what, are we, what different planet is this? And this, in so many different ways, we're, the values that we have, I don't know if people want to get up on Sunday morning and come in through the snow to sit and hear somebody talk about a 2,000-year-old book and sing some songs, but we value this. We view this as important. We just have different uh, views, a different mindset, different heart. Worldliness is the, the view that the world has around us. That's their attitude, their mindset. Whereas we're called to, to holiness, to something different. And worldliness will seem, that'll seem natural in this world. Where holiness, being, uh, following God, is going to look odd in this world. And we just need to realize this. So if you are absolutely at home in this world right now, there, there is something wrong. There needs to be a way as Christians where we need to distance ourselves from the hold that society might have over us. Now, not in the sense that we're, we just go and we live in a cave somewhere. I think we're called to be engaged in this world. Okay, we're called to be salt and light and to make a difference. But we need to learn to live in, in Babylon in the right way. Um, when Jeremiah was uh, exiled, uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, it says, The Lord said to him, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray for the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So on one hand, yep, we are to, as uh, one sense, citizens of this world, to seek the good alongside it. We're to be engaged exiles. Okay, we're aliens in this world, but we're not supposed to be alienated from this world. But we also always need to remember that we're not fully a part of this world. You know, we, this isn't our ultimate citizenship here. And not to let ourselves get so entrenched to things that we lose the one that we have our ultimate citizenship and our ultimate allegiance to. We need to remember as Christians that we no longer have the home field advantage in our culture. That's just how it is. That we're, we're, we're playing away games as exiles. And right now, like in the NFL, everyone is, well, the teams that are still in it, um, so are, you know, hoping, you know, if they can get home field advantage for the playoffs, it's a big deal. I know Lions fans, this might not relate to you at all. Uh, but, uh, you know, you want that home field advantage, and we have to realize that we just don't have that. You know, we're playing away games at, at this point. Uh, we're, we're ambassadors to a different culture. We need to expect that there's going to be resistance from the culture. You know, don't expect the applause of this world as we follow Christ for everyone to think, oh, you're doing such great things. We need to expect that there's going to be persecution, people not understanding, people looking the wrong way. And we need to make sure that, just a little tip, you know, don't ever think that you can sell out and fit in and that's going to work out well. You know, the, the mob out there is never going to be satisfied with just a little bit of giving in. You know, they want you all the way and it's, it's never enough. So there's no point selling out at all. Just keeping true to Christ. So that's kind of a discouraging thing. We're exiles and, ugh, we don't have home field advantage. This is kind of tough. So I want to leave you with the second point here. Because on one hand, yeah, there's a sense of estrangement. It's tough. But this whole letter is also written to help us to have security in God. To find our security in Christ and in the hope of the gospel. 
So look at what's already even said just in these first two verses, Christian, about your identity. That on one hand, yes, you are an exile, but look also says, you're not just an exile, but it says you're an elect exile. You're one that has been chosen by God. This is part of your identity. So point two, Christian, you are chosen and, and saved by the triune God. Do you notice we read verse 2 here? You see the full uh, trinity in these verses. doesn't use the word trinity, but you see God the Father, and then God the, the Holy Spirit, and then God the Son. A little different order, but you see uh, each member of the trinity here working together for your salvation and, and your good to give you security, to give you this, this, this calling, to give you identity, uh, to, to save you. So when we look at this, we see that, yes, we have estrangement in this world, but Christian, you have security in God by the, the Holy Trinity himself being at work for this. So we see, first of all, it says, uh, to those who are elect exiles, and then verse 2 says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, depending on which translation you're looking at, the word might be, it might use the word elect, or it might use the word chosen, and depending what verse you're looking at, too, if you're looking at verse 1, you may say, well, where is it? Where'd it go? Translators sometimes have to move the words around in the word order uh, because, you know, different languages put words in different order. Um, in Spanish, you'd say, you know, Rio Grande. Uh, but if you translated that to, to English, it would mean river big, where we would say big river. So sometimes you have to, translators, the goal is to keep the same words, um, find the one that matches the best and put them in the order that's going to make sense. And so some translations will have the word elect or chosen in verse 1 by elect exiles, but some will move it right to the beginning of verse 2 and say elect according to the foreknowledge of God or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. But it's in there uh, no matter what translation uh, that you have. And so this tells us that, that first of all, the work of the Father here, that you were... You were chosen. You were selected by the Father. When you think of chosen election, the same thing. You, you choo- in an election, you choose a candidate. You select a candidate. And we see this is the work of, of God the Father. His, uh, he's the point person in this work. Other verses talk about this. One of Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You have security because God, Christian, has has chosen you. Now, this is not in a way... Uh, that takes away from your human responsibility, okay? We all have a responsibility, you know, that everyone does to, to hear the message of the offer of the gospel and to respond, okay? This doesn't take away that responsibility. And you still, uh, when you come to Christ, it's you coming to Christ. But this is just a mysterious truth of Scripture, that whether you realize it or not, that behind the scenes and before everything else, God was already at work. That, that yes, you came to Christ, but that 
God before th- all things and from the, from the beginning and behind all things, this was part of his plan for you. That he uh, chose you to, to be his. This was God's initiative. You notice it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God knows everything. He knows the future. He knew how this whole world would play out before he even brought this world into existence. I mean, he chose the, the story of this world and everything that would happen in it. And back when you were still an idea in the mind of God, uh, he loved you and he chose you. And he has knowledge of the future. Foreknowledge here, the noun for foreknowledge in the Bible only occurs as a noun in Acts 2.23. And it's about the crucifixion. And there it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The most evil, terrible thing that could happen, the Son of God being put to death on a cross, the most unjust thing, part of his, his plan, part of... So when we see foreknowledge here, this doesn't just mean God's looking down the corridor of time and he sees you're such a wonderful person and you came to him and so now he's picking you. No, if he looked down the corridor of time, uh, he would see that unless he did something, we would turn away from him forever. But so God is not choosing us because he saw that we would come to him first. But his foreknowledge, it's part of his plan. Just the same way that when God... He didn't just look down the quarter of time and see, oh, wow, they're putting Jesus on a cross? Oh, I better do something with this. How can, I, how can I salvage this? No, the whole thing is part of his plan from the beginning. This means that none of the circumstances that you will find yourself in take God by surprise. 2020, no one expected that. And guess what? 2021, uh, and the future beyond that, we have no idea what to expect. Uh, there's things we can guess, things we can try to prepare for, but we do not know. God has known this from the beginning. And so if there are trials in our, in our culture, if there are suffering and trials in your life, none of this, none of these things are things that are taking God by surprise. And he chose you in and through all of this. He chose you along with these circumstances, and he's going to be with you in all of these circumstances. It also means that God knows you. Realize how known you are by God the Father. That he knows you even better than you know yourself. Do you realize how seen you are by God? This also means that, you know what, he chose you and none of your failures take God by surprise. Think, well, okay, he saved me, but he didn't know I was going to blow it this bad. Or he didn't know how bad my heart really is. Well, he knows it. He, he knows you're even worse than you think you are. And he knows the ways you're going to screw up. And guess what? He still chose you, and he still saved you, and he still died on the cross for you, Christian. Find your security in him. So first of all, we see from this, yeah, you're selected by the Father. And we also see, it says in the, right after that, uh, that it says in the sanctification of the Spirit. So not only are you selected by the Father, but you're also set apart by the Holy Spirit. You were chosen by the Father and set apart. That's what sanctification means. Yeah, it's this progress of uh, being made more holy that's part of it. There's, there's a part where God uh, declares you to be holy, 
uh, and then works in and through you to, to make you more and more holy. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit in your, in your life. And he's setting you apart. So we are chosen and, and called out of this world, and then he, he sets us apart from this world. That we're no longer just classified as, oh, you're a part of this world. No, you're, you're classified as being in him being in a, in a different kingdom, in a, in a different realm, set apart, that you belong to God now. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Second Thessalonians two thirteen through 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And through this he called you through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see the work of the Father, you see here the work of the Holy Spirit, and they're all working together as they do this. Uh, the old theologian John Owen once wrote, Everything God does, he does as the triune God. Each person of the Trinity is involved in every action of God. Yet at the same time, each person has a special role to fulfill in that work. And there is no good that we receive from God, but it is brought to us and wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. Nor is there any good towards God, any faith, love, obedience to his will, but what we are established to do by the Holy Spirit. So the whole Trinity, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit at work, and God the Son is at work. And it finishes, it says, with the purpose for this, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, selected by God the Father, set apart by the Holy Spirit, and we'll use the same words that it has there, uh, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. And it says here, obedience first. And here, I think this, the obedience here, this isn't talking about being saved by your, uh, your good works, but I think maybe this, the best way to understand this here is you're responding to his call to turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I hope that you've heard that call, and I hope that you've responded to this. You're responsible to do this. And may God be working in your heart, if you haven't already, that you would turn to him and find all these things to be true for you. The offer is, is open and available to you. The blood of Christ has been shed, and it has been shed for sinners like me and, and like you. And it talks about the being sprinkled by his his blood uh we're used to you know language like that it's really kind of grotesque if you if you think about it being sprinkled with blood um but we know that it's the blood of christ that was shed for us and it's the only way that we're saved we can't be saved by our good works but jesus had to go to the cross and he had to shed his blood to pay for our sins we're saved by the plan of the father by the power of the holy spirit and the by the propitiation from the blood of jesus christ shed for us I think another thing that this might be hinting at too, you know, way back in the book of Exodus, when, if you think of God's Old Testament people, okay, Israel, there's part in the book of Exodus, chapter 24, 3 through 8, where uh, Moses gets all the people together and he, he reads them all the words of the Lord and all the rules that he had given to them. And it says that all the people responded in one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they're responding in this obedience. And then they did the ceremony. And this is where they literally did this with blood, where they had the blood of this, this, these sacrifices. Uh, these animals were killed. And it said, and Moses took the blood, and part of it was poured on the altar, but 
the rest of it, it says Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Okay, so this is part of saying you are part of my Old Testament, old, my, my covenant people in, in, according to the old Mosaic covenant. And like literally they had blood sprinkled on them. I mean, that would that'd be quite a morning if we did that. Uh, you know, that when we accept the blood of Christ, we, uh, it's not like that. But for them, this was a literal thing. And that was a way of ratifying, according to the, the old covenant, that they were God's people. But think of this. We're saying we were sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. I think part of what this means, too, yeah, we're saved by the blood of Christ, but we're being sprinkled by it, too. We are made God's new covenant people by the blood of Christ. So, Christian, you are out of place in this world. You are not of the people of this world, but you are made into God's people through all of this. You are selected by the Father to be his people, to belong to God. You have been set apart by the Holy Spirit to belong to God. And you've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ to belong to God. You are not of the people of this world, Christian, but you are God's people. The book closes, or these verses close and say, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Christian, you are strangers in this world, but you are secure in the triune God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this word that you've given to us. Help us to understand it and to uh, realize our situation in this world, that we have a, a different citizenship. We're not going to be like everyone that is around us, Lord God. But you have put us here, and you keep us here for a purpose. You want us to be a light to those that are around us. Uh, you want us to speak truth to a world that is lost and, and perishing, Lord God. Lord, help us to help other people to come to know you as Lord and Savior and help us not to be pulled into the beliefs and mindsets and help us not to be absorbed into the thinking of this world, Lord God. Help us to find our identity and security in you. And we thank you that the full power and might of the triune God gives us our security and our identity. We praise you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.